and welcome to On Opinion, the Palia podcast. I'm Turi Bunti. We live in opinionated times. Culture wars, identity politics, polarization. Everyone has an opinion. But do we know where our opinions come from? Do we know why we think what we think? In each episode, I'll talk to experts across all disciplines to help us understand the nature of opinion, how we form ideas, why we argue, and what that means for society. Hello, I'm Emma Penny, producer of On Opinion, which is now part of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts that examines what's broken in our democracy and how we can work together to fix it. I'd like to share with you another podcast from the network, The Science of Politics, hosted by Matt Grossman. It offers a data-driven understanding of what's going on behind the scenes in American politics. Subscribe to Science of Politics wherever you get your podcasts. Today we're thrilled to be talking to David Livingston-Smith. David's a professor of philosophy at the University of New England. He did his PhD at King's College London on the philosophy of psychology. And his work focuses on dehumanization, self-deception, human nature, and moral psychology. He's written close to a dozen books, including On Inhumanity, which we'll be discussing today and which we'll link to in the show notes, and has spoken at the G20 on dehumanization. David, it's a huge pleasure to have us have you with us. Thank you. Oh, thank you. It's a, it's, it's a mutual. It's mutual. Um, I should start here, I think, with a very clear trigger warning, unfortunately, which is that um, the history and the stories that you describe in your book are ones of almost inconceivable cruelty. Um, we'll touch on some of them, um, but our capacity to hurt each other, our bloodlust, the inventiveness of our violence is boundless. How are we able to be so inhumane? What is this inhumanity? Yeah, so that's actually a very good question to start with. And I like how you you put it. How are we able to be? Because that implies that it's not just a question of how we are. It's not just a question of invoking human nature and saying, well, we are violent, uh, bloodlustful creatures. Um, and it isn't. In fact, what I think comes more readily to us is difficulty performing acts of violence to one another. Uh, There are powerful inhibitions that almost all people have against acts of lethal and sublethal violence. Now, two questions arise from that. One would be, well, how can you say that, David, given that, that history is littered with corpses, given the stuff that you write about in your books? That's one. And the other is, why? Well, on what grounds do you make this claim? Well, let's start with the, the second one question, and the first one will answer itself. Here's a fact about human beings. We are what biologists call ultra-social animals. We live in large cooperative groups. We've engaged in cooperative social life. Well, when I say we, before the evolution of our species. Now, there was cooperative hunting and group living and so on. And the degree of our sociality far exceeds that of any other primate, any other mammal. In fact, you have to look to animals like ants and bees to get anywhere near the intense sociality that for human beings is just a matter of course. 
Now, social animals must have inhibitions against acts of violence within their communities. For obvious reasons, you can't maintain a social life if you're ripping each other's throats out. And so this is very, very common. When you have social animals, there are mechanisms that limit violence. They don't limit it perfectly. Things get out of hand on occasion, but generally speaking, it's limited. We humans, being ultra-social, have to have extraordinarily powerful inhibitions against violence directed at one another, and they extend beyond our immediate communities because our social exchanges extend beyond our immediate communities. So long-distance trade, for instance, has been around you know, since the Stone Age. Now, what that means is that we are disposed to have difficulty harming one another. Now, especially and importantly, when it's up close and personal. And there's a lot of research which supports this. It's extraordinarily difficult to, say, plunge a blade into someone's guts while you're looking into their eyes. And people who do that, unless they happen to be sociopathic, are often haunted by the experience for a lifetime. It, it drives people nuts. So we have that. But on the other hand, we are creatures with these great big brains, and we're able to think instrumentally, and we're able to recognize that it may be advantageous to perform acts of terrible violence uh, on our neighbors. We can think, oh, those people over there, you know, wouldn't it be great for us if we could enslave them, if we could kill them and exploit their resources, and so on and so forth. So, just thinking up to this point, there are two contradictory impulses, right? And being the relentlessly inventive creatures that we are, we found ways of selectively disabling our violent impulses. Now, there are a number of ways that we do this. And, and when I say we, I mean human beings generally, we can see this across cultures. One is through the use of intoxicants, from alcohol to opiates to, to even to hallucinogens. If you look at the, the history of, of drug use in combat, say. Um, another are mind-altering ritual practices. People get themselves worked up before going out to slaughter their neighbors. There are certain religious ideologies and spiritual ideologies which assist in this process. The version of a disabling mechanism that concerns me is dehumanization. So if we can bring ourselves to regard those who are out to harm as less than human creatures, and in particular as dangerous, unclean, monstrous, or demonic creatures, then this does two things. It liberates aggression by creating a kind of moral distance from them, and it also motivates violence. You know, you exterminate the cockroaches, uh, you drive a stake through the heart of the of the monsters, right? So I think there are sort of cultural technologies at play that greatly assist us in performing terrible acts of violence against other human beings. What a terrible term. Cultural technologies, they feel, they talk, they echo of Mengele, they echo of so many of the atrocities that we have seen rationalized that's very powerfully anchored into our evolutionary selves. There is, as you describe it, a sort of social political element to dehumanization. And there's also a psychological one. There are certain traits that we have internally as individuals, which 
aid in the process. Essentialization, shortcut heuristics, stereotyping. Can we talk a little bit to those key pieces? We've got the broad evolutionary group. What about the individual? Sure. Well, evolution is going to only come into the picture in, in two respects. One is that, well, actually in three. So our evolution has been such that we are hypersocial animals and therefore have inhibitions against active violence against our own kind. Our evolution has been such that we have great big brains that enable us to think instrumentally. And third, we have certain psychological dispositions which are easily exploited by people in positions of authority who have an investment in getting us to do awful things to one another. I look at dehumanization as a psychological response to political forces. Dehumanization is not in any sense an innate disposition. Rather, it's a product of such dispositions interacting with political forces. So let's look at the psychological tendencies first, and then let me explain how the political dimension plays into this. So suppose uh, that you, the listener, are um, a Nazi. Suppose you're a, a committed SS man. And suppose, as is in fact true, I am a Jew, despite my very Christian-sounding name. You would regard me as an Untermensch, as a subhuman, as a less-than-human being. Now, this is really puzzling on the face of it. It's puzzling because in all outward respects, I'm indistinguishable from anyone that you would regard as a human being. I'm bipedal, I wear clothes, I speak your language, I read the newspaper, I love my children. So how can you possibly regard me as a subhuman creature? Well, I think the answer to this question comes from a body of psychological research into what's called psychological essentialism. What psychological essentialism is, is our tendency to do two things, to divide the world up into what we philosophers call natural kinds, things like biological species and chemical elements, kinds of things that are out there objectively, kinds of things that are not creations of our classificatory practices. That's the first bit. The second bit is the crucial bit. According to the essentialist mindset, what makes any individual belong to one of these kinds is the possession of some deep and unobservable property, some in some strange sense inside of them. And psychologists call this the essence. So essences are often imagined to be in the blood or nowadays in the genome. They, are, they can't be observed, but they're causally responsible for the outward characteristics which are observable. So put crudely, what makes a dog a dog is not that it wags its tail and goes woof, woof. Those are merely symptomatic, according to this way of thinking, of the dog essence, something that all and only dogs share, which makes them dogs. And this applies to all these natural kinds, like human beings. Well, what makes a human being a human being on this way of thinking, which I want to insist becomes, comes very easily and naturally to us, is not the appearance the appearance is merely symptomatic. It's something supposed to be something deeper. Part of the logic of essentialistic thinking is that the appearance can belie the essence. That is, it's possible to appear to be one kind of being, but actually be another kind of being within that mindset. Now we can return to our SS man, looking at me, the Jew. Well, what he sees me as having the external appearance of a human being, 
but inside I'm something different. I'm something more, more lower on the scale of creation and more dangerous and destructive than any human being. I notice I imported something. They're lower on the scale. This is the second psychological component, which is hierarchical thinking. The idea of the world of, of living things as arranged as a hierarchy with the most perfect at the top and the least perfect at the bottom. Unlike essentialism, this has simply not been studied by psychologists, which is immensely frustrating for someone like me who writes about these matters. Uh, traditionally, um, historians of ideas have called this the great chain of being. The idea of the great chain of being, there's precisely one book on this called The Great Chain of Being, written in the 30s by a philosopher named Arthur O. Lovejoy. And Lovejoy says, well, this hierarchical notion was European creation uh, putting together elements of Platonic and Aristotelian thought in late antiquity. And it had its intellectual career throughout the Middle Ages and then died out in the 19th century. The book is a wonderful piece of scholarship. It really is very impressive. But I think those two claims are false. They're false because we find this pattern of thinking all over the world, including pre-cultures, pre-contact with Europeans, like the Aztecs. And it hasn't died out. Right. We, we still operate with this way of thinking. You know, if you know, I'm speaking to you and suppose a fly is buzzing around your room and you grab a magazine, you swat that fly. If I were to say, how could you do that? How could you take the life of that fly? Well, your response is going to be something of the order, well, it's just a fly. <laughs> in other words, it's lower in the scheme of things. So essentialism gives us human appearance non-human essence and therefore really not human and hierarchical thinking gives us subhuman now given that we are powerfully disposed to both ways of thinking these are psychological proclivities that others can play on to very destructive ends now, if you look at the history of dehumanization dehumanization doesn't arise spontaneously the typical scenario for dehumanization is that there's a, an entrenched ideology, and I have a whole theory of ideology in my work to explain how this operates. So it's there kind of simmering away. For instance, uh, European anti-Semitism, which really gets a grip in the late Middle Ages. And then, you know, it, it has its day, and, you know, by the 20th century, it's there, but it's not as blatant. And then a skillful propagandist who sort of activates that latent ideology. So if you look at the rise of, of Nazism in Germany, we find precisely that. We have the deep anti-Semitic traditions. But, you know, in, the, in the, the 20s and 30s, Jews were more integrated into German life than anywhere. Um, and then you have skillful propagandists, Hitler and Goebbels, among others who didn't quite make it, <laughs> uh, are able to activate this, they, they change the social ecology and they activate this relatively latent tendency. Dehumanization, typically, it comes from the outside. In the mouth of a Hitler or a right-wing radio host, or it can be distributed through a whole community where everyone in positions of authority just buys into a particular view as common sense. And, you know, everyone then brought up in that atmosphere has been given the message that these others are not really human. They're counterfeit human beings. So we've got profound psychological proclivities, which can be triggered. 
there are political contexts which make dehumanization more likely or more, more useful, more valuable. You talk in your book to a whole series of other functions that dehumanization performs. And they range from a response to what you call metaphysical threat through to disgust. Um, you've described the process, the rituals of dehumanization as, as almost sacrificial, as ritualistic, as religious. Can we walk through some of the other functions that dehumanization performs? Well, the, the, the thing is, dehumanization is kind of layered. And um, as soon as a group of people is dehumanized, or at least dehumanized in the most dangerous and toxic way, there are psychological after effects which make it even worse. So let me explain this. Let's go back to human beings as ultra-social animals. One consequence of this, one consequence of of our nature as ultra-social primates is we're exquisitely sensitive to indications of commonality of humanness. And this is particularly in response to the sight of a human face, and even more particularly to the sight of human eyes. So we know from neuropsychology that faces are processed by the brain in a totally different way from everything else. There's, faces are very, very, very special to us. And this is true from immediately after birth. Infants are attracted to human faces. The face is sort of the icon of, of humanness. So when we encounter another human being, my view is we cannot help but see human. It's a gut reaction. It's modular. It's boom. To go back to our little horror story there, you, Nazi SS man, when you look at me, you can't help but see human. In Auschwitz, by the way, there was a, an informer rule that the guards shouldn't meet the prisoner's gaze because that's humanizing. So you can't help but see me as human, but you also accept on the authority of, say, Heinrich Himmler or the, or the, the Nazi race scientists or Josef Goebbels or Adolf Hitler himself that I'm subhuman. You defer epistemically to the experts, those right. who are supposed to know. Now, it's totally reasonable for us to do that, just generally. We couldn't have human culture if we didn't do that. Uh, now, unfortunately, we invest the sort of epistemic authority in people who don't really merit it. And this inevitably happens, you know, in the United States and say the 1850s, the most distinguished scholars and scientists were scientific racists. They told us that, that black people were members of a different species. Well, they were qualified, right? People accepted it. It's rational to accept, even though it can lead us astray. So back to the SS officer, then you've, you accept because those who are supposed to know have told you that Jews are less than human. Now, what happens then? What happens then is you've taken this view of Jews as subhuman on board, but you also can't help seeing Jews as human. And this is absolutely crucial. It's very, very important. So you have two contradictory, mutually incompatible representations of the person in front of you as wholly human and as wholly subhuman. It's not like half and half, wholly human and wholly subhuman. Now, this has a very important psychological effect. It renders the dehumanized person uncanny, disturbing, and monstrous. Here I'm drawing very much, well, I'm drawing on the work of many scholars going back to 1906. There was a really amazing 
article written by a German psychiatrist named Ernst Jentsch called On the Psychology of the Uncanny. My interpretation of what Jentsch is saying in this paper is that this response of, of, to Unheimlichkeit, which I will, for the purpose of this translation and elsewhere in my work, translate as creepiness. We experience things as creepy if our minds are torn between assigning them to two mutually incompatible categories. He gives great illustrations. I mean, his best one, I think, is figures in a wax museum. Disturbing. Well, why? Because we respond, if they're well done, we respond to them as human, but we also respond to them as lumps of wax. And as long as our minds can't settle, we're creeped out by these figures. Corpses is another. It's dear old dad lying there in the coffin, and it's a slab of cold meat. They're two incompatible representations of what's in front of us. This idea was independently discovered much later, 1970, by a man named Masahiro Mori, who was a roboticist, who wrote a famous paper called The Uncanny Valley. He goes exactly, he does exactly what Jentsch did long before um, in the context of robotics. He says, look, as we make robots, humanoid robots, they're more and more similar to human beings, we'll become more and more comfortable with them until they're almost indistinguishable, but not quite. And then we drop into what he calls the uncanny valley. Now, the Japanese word translated as uncanny is bukimi, which is translatable again as creepy. So I like calling this paper, the title of it, The Valley of Creepiness, which sounds terribly creepy. Good. <laughs> um, he says the same about prosthetic limbs. He, he advises, don't try to make them too realistic because people will be repelled. Um, Four years before um, Maury, the British anthropologist Mary Douglas explored similar territory in her book, Purity and Danger. My interpretation of Douglas is that she says this, in every culture, the culture operates with systems of categories in which natural things are slotted. Lots of boxes, categories. But of course, as soon as you do that, nature isn't like that. Things, there are always things that don't fit in. Right that straddle categories or seem to be interstitial. And she argues that these things are experienced as dangerous. They, and implicitly because they undermine the natural order. They're, they're, they're unnatural things. They have to be handled with great care. So now this takes us to the final person that's most important. And that's a philosopher named Noel Carroll, does aesthetics. He wrote a great book called uh, The Philosophy of Horror. And one, it's all about horror fiction. One of the questions he tries to answer is what makes a monster? And on his diagnosis, what makes a monster is twofold. A monster, a horrific monster, as he says, a sort of monster we find in horror fiction, has to be physically threatening. It's out to harm you. A nice monster isn't a monster. It wants to, to eat your brains or, or steal your soul or do something awful to you. But that's not sufficient, obviously, because there are lots of physically threatening beings, some real, some imaginary, that don't count as monsters, serial killers, terrorists, grizzly bears, rattlesnakes. They're all physically dangerous. The monster has to be what he calls cognitively threatening, and I call metaphysically threatening. And what that means is, and here he's drawing on Douglas, it has to be an impossible combination of different kinds of things. It has to transgress the boundaries between the categories that we regard as natural categories. So for instance, zombies are dead 
and they're alive. They're corpses that walk around and eat. Werewolves are wolves and people. And you, you can literally go right through the, you know, the, the horror canon and find these categorical contradictions, right? So that's metaphysical threat. Metaphysical threat greatly amplifies physical threat. Now let's come back to dehumanization. Well, if my diagnosis is correct, as I'm pretty sure it is, that when we dehumanize others, we end up conceiving of them as human on one hand and subhuman on the other hand and dangerous, which is often the precursor. You see, the population gets that gets dehumanized is typically first regarded as dangerous, criminal, out to get us, and so on and so forth. All that's in place. They're transformed into monsters. Now, this is sort of a a, a non-intentional consequence of that first dehumanizing move. It's because we can't quite shake an awareness of the humanity, paradoxically. That's what turns them into monsters. And that's what creates, it's our very inability to see others simply as subhuman animals that contributes to the worst excesses that dehumanization produces. Now, you also, you talked about the rituals of humiliation. Let me give an example. It was a practice, not universal by any means, but pretty common in the uh, American South pre-Civil War to force enslaved people to eat out of animal troughs. In fact, to compete with the dogs for food. Now, that just seems so gratuitously degrading and humiliating. It's analogous to other things. The the emphasis on hum humiliation, say, during the Holocaust, it was not good enough just to exterminate Jews. They had to be humiliated. They had to get down on their hands and floors and hands and knees in Vienna and clean the streets, doctors and lawyers and so on, surrounded by laughing crowds, lynching victims who were dressed up uh, as kings and dragged around town on a carnival float. So there are these rituals of humiliation. I think what's going on there is an attempt to neutralize the threat posed by these, what have become human monsters. The cognitive threat, the metaphysical threat. Exactly. To strip them of that monstrousness, you know, to sort of assert you're really nothing. It's, it's, it's an effort of the dehumanizer to reassure themselves against this cognitive threat posed by the dehumanized. So that, that cognitive and physical threat, which is always required to elicit this kind of dehumanization. And let's go back a little bit and, and remind us that what we're talking about here is not the scaled dehumanization of, say, men to women, that women are considered a little bit less human, or that uh, children are considered less fully human than adults, etc. We're not talking about that scaled dehumanization, racism, which is a form of it, but we're talking about the way you frame it is a, a very particular, extremely violent sort of psychosis. And let's be clear, you say dehumanizers, I'm quoting you, dehumanizers aren't just pretending. They sincerely believe that those whom they persecute are less than human. And so to your point here, going back to the cognitive and physical threat, one of the things which strikes so many of us looking at this is that, for example, the Jew is both vermin and filth and dirty and cockroach and all-powerful, superhuman and brilliant. The black man is weak and animalistic and all these other things and superhumanly powerful, an extraordinary super predator, the power of strength. So this very peculiar, um, what is this, a dualism of personalities, 
which reflect or mirrors what you've just said here, which is that they are both human and not human. That uncanniness is reflected in the descriptions of these people too. Yeah. And the descriptions of them typically alternate between characterizing them as subhuman and characterizing them as human, implicitly or explicitly. So some, some philosophers and psychologists are skeptical uh, of my claims about dehumanization because they say, well, look, um, people who dehumanize others ostensibly recognize their humanness. They, for instance, they try to humiliate them. Well, you don't humiliate cockroaches. And they call them criminals. Well, the category criminal only applies to human beings. Therefore, the conclusion that these people draw is, well, the, the animalistic language, it's just a way of talking. It's, it's a way of slurring, a way of degrading. And in fact, unless there was recognition of the other's humanity, that form of speech would be pointless. You don't say to a rat, you're just a rat. Um, now, I go further. With that, I say, well, it's often explicit. If you if you find this again and again and again and again, and there's a, this example in my my last book about the uh, it was a woman who took part in the Hadarani pogrom against Romani people in in Romania when was it 1993? And she's interviewed by a journalist from I believe it was the Independent, and she says to him things like, you know, gypsies aren't human, and the next sentence, they're criminal. And she goes on several iterations of human subhuman, human subhuman. It's like a duck rabbit situation here. And I, th I think it's because only one of those can be held in mind, held in mind at one time, right? So the dehumanizer tends to flip. And I, I think really, if we understand that dehumanization involves the simultaneous representation of the dehumanized other as wholly human and wholly subhuman, then that makes sense. And also the monstrousness makes sense, the, the uncanniness, the, the distinctive phenomenology of dehumanization, which, as you point out, and I think this is very, very important, is different from phenomena that I would say are live next door. You know, sexism, racism, transphobia, this sort of thing. And so I'm a big fan of making distinctions rather than lumping everything together. And unfortunately, the way that the term dehumanization is used is very often as an umbrella term for a lot of, you know, toxic attitudes, but attitudes which are which which have different dynamics from right. from one another. Right, that makes sense. So again, back to the functions of dehumanization. We've talked about straightforward rape and pillage. You want that? You want the land? This this fundamental piece of trying to fix cognitive order, trying to enshrine purity, trying to deal with this sort of metaphysical threat. The Jew who's doing well in Germany in the 1920s and 30s, the black person in the US who is both human and not human in your understanding, that there's got to be some deep latent psychological guilt or debt to be paid in dealing with that sort of cognitive friction of knowing somebody as both human and treating them as a slave. But one of the terrifying, awful threads that run through these acts of dehumanization that you talk to is something you just touched on. It's the extraordinary cruelty involved. Dehumanizing, fine. Not, not quite granting full citizenship, not quite granting full human rights to X or Y race or religion or whatever it might be. I understand in the framework that you've, that you've, just, that you've described or outlined here. Why the extraordinary cruelty? Why the torture? Why the violence? In all of these instances, what, what is that coming from? 
Well, part of what it's coming from is that the monster is by definition evil and supremely evil, right? So you don't, in the horror flick, you don't, you feel no compassion for the monster. You know, you don't suffer with Dracula as the stake is going through his heart. So you have to understand that when you turn people into monsters, and like I say, this is kind of a, a consequence of the initial step towards dehumanizing them, you make them evil. And your job then becomes a highly moralistic job, right? Now, this is a very, very important dimension of all these episodes of mass violence that, you know, the, the genocidaire is saving the world from evil, right? So it becomes a moral, almost a quasi-religious or sometimes an explicitly religious paradigm going on. You're fighting the demons and anything goes and everything goes. Now, if we combine this with the threat posed by the dehumanized person, the need to belittle them, to show them they're nothing, to show them they're powerless, precisely because of this looming metaphysical threat, which amplifies the physical threat that, that we um, attribute to them. Then we have the formula for these horrible, horrible, horrible acts. It feels like they must serve some social function, some bonding function. There's the, the religious element, the ritualistic element, but the violence itself, it's doing something. Yeah, it's it's probably doing a it's doing a lot of things. I imagine there's a there's a great book, American Racism, in the 19th century called A Rage for Order, and I think that title sums up a lot of what's going on here. A Rage for Order. So if you think of the 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 monsters created by the act of dehumanization as affronts to order, to the natural order, then the the acts which flow from dehumanizing sensibilities can be understood as attempts to restore order, to restore things to how they should be. So this, this is an idea of the natural order. You know, John Stuart Mill wrote a great piece about the notion of naturalness, and he points out that it can mean several different things. The third of his three meanings of the natural is the way things are supposed to be, right? And what dehumanization or what the atrocities of the the atrocities inspired by dehumanizing attitudes are aimed at is that kind of restoration the world needs to be healed of this rent in the natural order things need to be in their proper place so when when you know this the talk of putting them in their place well that's actually quite a deep idea it's putting them in their metaphysical place, in the hierarchy, not just their social place, which, you know, and the two are related because social relations are typically legitimized by ideas about the cosmos, about the, the, the larger natural order, you know. We're endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, right? So it's the big picture which then legitimates the, the smaller social, political picture. So they're, they're rituals of order restoration, for sure. They're, they're profoundly bonding. Um, and I'm sure there are many, many, many more functions to this. David, you start your book with this beautiful, heartbreaking Jewish joke about the village idiot in the shtetl who's sent out to wait for the Messiah. Um, can I ask you to tell the joke just because it's my second favorite Jewish joke? And then, because it's a very good framer 
for um, for asking you my next question, which is, what do we do about it? I wish I had a better, more elaborate, more definitive answer to your second question, but I'll do my best. So this is a joke set, of course, in the, the Pale of Settlement, in a Jewish village, a shtetl. And uh, it's a, you know, a small village. People look after each other. Everyone has a role. But there's one guy, let's call him Shlomo, Solomon, the wise man, who is unemployable. He, he's the village idiot. He, he, he can't hold down a job. He can't be assigned any position of responsibility. But the rabbi finds a job for him. The rabbi says, you are to sit at, at the edge of the, the village, stare into the distance intently, and wait for the Messiah to come. He does. Every day he schleps his, <laughs> his chair out. He sits there and he stares into the distance waiting for the Messiah. One day a visitor comes along and asks him, what are you doing? Shlomo says, I'm doing my job. The visitor says, well, what's that? He says, I'm waiting for the Messiah. The hours are long, the pay is bad, but it's steady work. <laughs> exactly. And so the reason I love that joke is because asking the question, how do we fix the worst bits of human nature, not just as individuals, but as groups? You know what? It's steady work. <laughs> so how do we fix it, David? Well, oh, just very briefly, uh, I think there are, there, are two, there are three dimensions. One pertains to education, but not just any kind of education, you know. Dehumanizers have often been very well-educated people. So at the Vance conference where 15 men sat around the table planning the extermination of European Jews, seven of them had PhDs. They weren't a stupid bunch. The sort of education I mean is education into ourselves. So we have these dispositions that I described, these psychological dispositions. They're easily manipulated. It's very easy to get sucked in into dehumanizing attitudes. Not to do so requires vigilance. And vigilance requires some understanding of our own vulnerabilities. Given that there's no inoculation, we, we, we need to be able to track ourselves. So I think people should be, I think should be part of education. Our vulnerability to essentialistic thinking, to hierarchical thinking, and, and why scientifically neither of these views holds any water at all. That's the education side. But there's the outward looking side as well. And that's political action, you know, supporting institutions which offer a measure of protection. Now, this is not foolproof. Supporting freedom of speech. Yeah, but Nazis are always complaining about their freedom of speech being restricted in the 20s. You know, there are actual posters of Hitler, you know, with a sort of like a piece of tape over his mouth, like he's been canceled and isn't that a terrible thing? Uh, an independent judiciary, of course, that can be subverted too. Nazism involved a great deal of legal theory. Um, Nazi legal theory. But those things can help. They can be subverted, but they can help. But finally, the people who get us to dehumanize others play on our vulnerabilities. They play on our sense of helplessness, our fears. The more basic security people have, I think, the less likely they are to uptake some of these messages. So, you know, it's really important for people to have enough to eat, you know, to have basic securities. So at least the insecurities that propagandists are trying to generate are surplus ones. It's not that, you know, you don't have jobs because the Jews have exploited the economy for themselves, right? It's, you've got jobs, cool. You're not going to be vulnerable to that kind of propaganda or as vulnerable to that 
kind of propaganda. So that, you know, it's it's an ongoing thing. It's waiting for the Messiah. Maybe the last thing, it, you know, I like to, to quote the Martin Luther King quote, the arc of history bends towards justice. And I said, no, it doesn't do it by itself. It's only if we're pushing at it and we have to keep pushing at it. Because if we don't keep pushing at it, it's going to spring back the other direction. <laughs> David, what a way to end. I feel there's some optimism there. Um, there is. But- well, there's hopefulness. If, as Cornel West says, I'm not optimistic, but I'm hopeful. If I wasn't hopeful, there'd be no point writing these books. <laughs> Good point. Um, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks so much for walking us through these very complicated, very painful ideas um, with such humanity. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you. That was On Opinion, the Palia podcast. Check out our show notes if you'd like to dig deeper into this episode's theme. And join me at palia.com to explore all the world's opinions. To stay up to date with new episodes or get further insights from our guests, subscribe to On Opinion the Palia podcast, wherever you listen, and follow us on social media at Ask Palia. All our links are in the show notes, and if you enjoyed this episode, please rate us and leave us a review. Thank you for listening.